Best thing about God bless America is one verse. No, I'm sure there are five somewhere. No, I looked it up. Irving Berlin wrote this, and it was just for this purpose of flummoxing Donald Trump (laughs) on the complex (laughs) lyrics in one verse that the third grade there, that's a third grade class in Atlanta. And they knew all uh, the Greystone Elementary School in Atlanta doing God bless America. And they did it without a hitch or a giddy up or forgetting any words. Yes, or, go, or going like, <laughs> when you didn't know a word. Don't make that mouth when you forget a word, Donald. Okay, so you didn't know it. <clears throat> Lots of people at your level wouldn't know the words, but don't do the, you know, you're making the wrong mouth. He's doing, what did I say, ooh. It's kind of a French thing. That, that, he does like a French thing. That, that fish mouth. The thing. fish mouth. Yeah. It's like a ooh, ooh, or an umlaut. Maybe it's an umlaut. Do an umlaut once. Sad. Can you do an umlaut? No, you can't do an umlaut. Say umlaut. <laughs> Say umlaut. <laughs> Come umlaut. on, Lyle. How long have we known each other? You will give me an umlaut? An umlaut. Umlaut, see? An umlaut doesn't have a, a, a sound. Umlaut. A vowel. A vowel. With an umlaut. Well, over you see it. that? Don't you go like this, though? Umlaut. No, you don't do that when you say umlaut. <laughs> it's laut? Yes, it's laut. Well, that kind of ruins it for me. Umlaut. So yeah, umlaut. I don't know if those I knew third, all the words. Those third I, in graders, fairness, I don't know if I knew all the words. Those third graders uh, knocked that out of the ballpark. But you know, third grade, what is that? Am I eight years old or nine years old? I don't know. Eight years old. Maybe. <clears throat> You know everything. In yeah, but they know third the words. Grade. It's so unfair. They know dates and things. As like the, well, they when should. was the War of eighteen twelve? <laughs> Trump didn't know that. <laughs> they know that. I hope so. Automatically. Uh, yes. They know who, even who was in it. They knew who burned the White House. If they're in third grade, there, at, uh, not just at uh, Greystone Elementary in Atlanta, but hey, hats off to you kids, by the way. And actually, you know, it was very cute. They did that. And then they in, invited the Philadelphia Eagles to come to their school. <laughs> and that was sweet. And they gave them all little Greystone Elementary Eagles T-shirts. Oh, That's their team. Well, it was very nice. Yes. And the, guess what? They that all came. came. They all came. <laughs> they didn't stay in the so locker room? So there's that, too. What? They didn't stay in the locker room? I'll tell you, it was crowded there in that little <laughs> elementary school because they came in their classroom. And they're not, not that big. Yeah. So... 
Uh, God bless Greystone Elementary School, Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and the other news that isn't besides the Greystone Elementary news, we have uh, President uh, Trump gets no seconds for his America First policy at the G7 summit in Toronto. Uh, there was or some old guy way in back who thought he said American fries instead of America First. He got excited, and even though he's there in Poutine no. country. <laughs> he must have been an American. Must I have don't been think with the you Trump. can say that. What? Poutine. <laughs> See, there you did that with your mouth. Did you, I'm sorry, did you say Putin? Putin. You can't say that on the radio. Putin. Uh, Ruth Badass Ginsburg's dissent in the Holy Baker case take a flying leap at a rolling donut or something to that effect. Next on the baking docket for the Supreme Court, does a penis cake have legal rights as a part of a person? Interesting. <laughs> nice look. I didn't know. I wish I could do that with I, the one I, eyebrow I, that goes up. I never heard anything about that. No, what's, what's the background of that? You know what? Uh, this is a monologue. You don't have to really comment on everything. <laughs> well, that was monologue. What does that mean? You the word monologue means <laughs> but one. That was a little startling. Speaking. <laughs> well, some of these are. They're intended to shake people out of their torpor. Okay. Or their stupor. Yeah. Well, it's you midsummer. You would rather have a stupor or a torpor. <laughs> Which could you possibly enjoy? <laughs> Stupid or not? Well, it depends on how they're made. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you win that round. The new Democratic National Committee edict that presidential candidates must be Democrats and Presbyterians was thought to be aimed at Bernie Sanders. EPA head Scott Pruitt won't say if it was any old Trump hotel mattress or a specific one that he wanted, and I think specific. Uh, Melania finally turns up wearing last year's Hervé Pierre and babbling in Slovenian, so it may be a while before we know what happened, if ever. Uh, her hus husband, uh, Donald, said uh, she's been through a rough patch, but she ain't seen nothing yet, he added. Uh, she has yet to say a word, causing many to believe Trump has an injunction against her. Or her cat may literally have gotten her tongue. And by the way, that's an appropriate use of Literally. Thank God she made it through the surgery since in the event of her demise, the Slovenian custom is for her younger sister to marry Donald Trump. So they, they just, That's awful. If she dies, then the one after her. Her, her much younger sister, I might add. Donald Trump pardons Barry Bonds, who is actually not convicted of anything, which sets a precedent for pardoning someone who has never actually done anything ever. Uh, Trump was going to pardon Muhammad Ali before finding out his conviction was overturned. Uh, about 50 years ago, but he still reserves the absolute right to resurrect him, which he can do. Well, the honeymoon suite is booked and paid for. The McDonald's franchise is on the way, but will it be enough to salvage the tumultuous Kim and Don affair? Find out this week on As the Trump Turns. There is some growing concern uh, over the Don-Kim summit that the Trump approach is more a rolled-up magazine tush-tap then a kick in the nukes. Pope summons oil executives to the Vatican to discuss climate change. And really, that could have been worse. They could have been there to discuss the scientific and historical difficulties raised against the incarnation, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus Christ against the traditional Roman Catholic interpretation and proclamation of the Christian fact or against the Roman Catholic claim to be the exclusive custodian of revealed doctrine and the means of salvation. Just saying. 
resist climate change. Trump demands history books be rewritten to show the despicable Canadians burning the White House in 1812 and laughingly pissing on the flames, as well as the slaughter of David Bowie and everybody at the Alamo. So, yes. Democrat enthusiasm surging around the country. You can't keep them in stock. Everybody wants him a Democrat. And for eons, you couldn't give them away. And now they're just glad I saved mine, actually. I just, something to wear it with is what I'm thinking. Uh, and here in Wisconsin, thanks to Governor Walker's lack of priorities, we're up to our asses in carcasses. Deer, that is. And kind of an odd first alert traffic note for you tonight. You might be noticing more dead deer on the side of the road this year. That's because the DNR is no longer in charge of picking them up, citing budget constraints. Instead, it's now the DOT's job. The DOT says it's working hard to clean them up, but more carcasses are found as fast as they're removed. If you hit a deer, you're asked to call local law enforcement. Well. Comment? No. <laughs> Speaks for itself. The DNR is not in charge of carcasses no. anymore. Who's in charge of his carcass is what I want to know. <laughs> Let's find the guy. Carcasses. And that's all the carcasses <laughs> that is around here. Anyway, thank you for your indulgence. All right, then. Now are we ready? Yeah, for we're us? getting ready to call up uh, Daniel Stone there. And I'm sure hoping he's, he's around. It's a long time since we booked this. But I've read oh. the book, and it's a great I love this. This is really cool. The Food Explorer. That. Uh, the True Adventures of the Globetrotting Botanist Who Transformed What America Eats. And he's on the line with us, Daniel Stone, the author. Yes, of, okay, now. And he's on the line with us, the author of uh, The Food Explorer, The Adventures of the Globetrotting Botanist, and uh, that's Daniel Stone. Hi, Daniel, you're with us. Hi, it's great to be with you. Thank you, it's great to have you. I, you know, I realized at the last moment last night after hours that I didn't get a phone number for you. And uh, because I am now producing myself, it's I'm really underproduced. So, but we got it at the last second, and I'm so glad. Well, Mike, thrilled to be with you. I'm glad we've connected. Yes, I have been listening to you for a long time, you including have? when I was a young kid. Uh -huh. And I remember probably maybe 1994 or five. You held a competition uh, where you invited young people around the country to send in a demo tape of themselves doing a radio show, yeah. and I, I did it. My parents took me to a little studio, and I recorded a little show, and I <laughs> sent it in, and I did not win, but I feel like now is some sort of redemption. Wow. This is revenge is what it is. I, I don't know what you're going to say to me after all this. I'm very sorry. You actually, you're, I mean, you went to a studio and produced it. You have very uh, forgiving parents or, or whatever. Well, yeah. I, I, uh, I was really interested in radio. I still am. And, yeah. and you helped inspire it. So, okay. um, yeah, no, it, I appreciate it and, and appreciate the invitation. Today. You know, I'm going to, I still have those tapes, I think. So I'm going to look through them and <laughs> oh, find it. And goodness. I'm going to give you another shot at it. Because <laughs> I think you'd be good. This, this, is a great, this is a great book. This is like the, the greatest story never told. Oh, I think so, too. I've, I had a lot of fun with it for the past uh, five years, just finding out more and more about this man, this, this man who was a food spy for our country and really transformed a lot of what we have available to eat now. Yeah. And David Fairchild is his name. And what's, what's his background? How did he get interested in this sort of thing? This was a young man who grew up in Kansas in the, day, the years after the Civil War, and he grew up around a lot of farmers who did not have a lot of 
diversity, not a lot of foods and crops. So everyone's growing a lot of the same crops, corns and corn and oats and, and uh, beans, uh, and not much, you know, diversity, so no one's making much money. And he finds his way to Washington. He finds his way to a job at the USDA uh, and eventually launches himself on a pursuit around the world to find new and better crops to help enrich American farmers and grow our country's economy in that formative era. Whoa. Was that all one sentence? <laughs> Daniel, if you're going to be on the radio, you got to do little choppy sentences. You know, and Lots then pause, and then you go for effect. You go on. And then, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's, but there's a big leap between working for the USDA and, and going around the world and looking, I mean, that, must, that was his idea, right? Yeah, he worked for a few years at the USDA in Washington. Um, he gets a little restless and decides he wants to travel. And in that era, traveling was very rare, right? People did not go very far, certainly to the other side of the world. But he says, you know, I want to explore as an agent for the government, and I want to go to exotic countries. I want to meet new people and ask them about what they eat and try to pick up seeds and cuttings and sprouts of different plants that maybe we could grow here in America. And, you know, some of his earliest finds were uh, pretty transformative. You know, avocados, Fairchild yeah. found avocados, yeah. mangoes, dates, pistachios, nectarines, crops that did not exist here before and now are, are central in our supermarkets. Yeah. The mangoes were a big hit, but not so much the mangosteens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mangosteen. Have you ever tried one? No, they, they look scary. <laughs> they look they're like not a, related. To the head a of a mango. Martian or something would look like that if you yeah, cut it open. They're, they're purple. I only had one once, but they grow in in Indonesia and Malaysia, mm. and they're apparently very delicious. But they they don't ship very well. So a hundred years ago, and even now. It's hard to get a mangosteen in the U.S., but that sure was is. Fairchild's favorite fruit of, of all he had ever tasted. He was very disappointed, but the farmers couldn't use them because they uh, they were just not for them. Not right. going to work out. Yeah. They yeah. bruised easily. They didn't ship easily. They ripened very fast, so they just didn't quite have what it takes to, mm. to be a, an apple, banana, orange, one of the, the powerhouse. Whereas products. the mangoes, when he, brought, when he showed them a mango, they said, this is going to be big. Yeah, they said, wow, it's really sweet. There's a lot of flesh. There's a lot there you can eat. There's a lot of different varieties of it that grow in India and the Philippines and Indonesia. Uh, and we have a little tropical land, which at that time was, was only Florida. Uh, mm. We could grow this in Florida and see how it does, and, and people really liked it. So that's one of the reasons we eat a lot of mangoes now. And also we have exported a lot of the production to places like Ecuador and Costa Rica, uh, who grow mangoes now, hmm. uh, even though they're not from those countries, hmm. they grow them a lot better and a lot cheaper. So if we're chase tracing the mango, it goes from where to where to where? Well, now our mangoes come from Costa Rica, from Ecuador, from hmm. Guatemala, Honduras, and hmm. come up through the Panama Canal to Florida <laughs> and up the East Coast. Thank God they um, can float. <laughs> but no, but I mean, originally then it came, they came from where to where? To, to oh, they came uh, originally from India and the Philippines. So That's, India, you know, and then and did they come here first, or was there a stop along the way? The, they traveled mostly through Asia all the way out to Europe, I mean, because of the, the connected landmass, mm -hmm. uh, up until the Columbian Exchange when Christopher Columbus 
arrives in the new world, it crops start to shuttle both ways. But Fairchild really brought back the best and earliest varieties of mangoes that were commercially viable mm. in America. And that was in about 1901. Yeah, commercially viable. Yeah, and that, and that's, I mean, in, in all of us, that's what's important, right? Because he's going out looking for these things, thinking perhaps this would work in, in the American situation there, in the, in yeah. the, new, the new commodities was, market. But he didn't yeah, know. He was a food explorer, but he wasn't really a foodie. You know, he wasn't <laughs> in the in the hunt for, for delicious foods. He yeah. was in the hunt for crops that could be economically transformative. Yeah, that's, so good, that's good because think, then he would have eaten all his samples. Exactly, yeah. He was looking to build industries. He was looking to enrich farmers uh, and, and really grow his country through its economy, through its agriculture. Yeah, so what a forward-thinking young man. I mean, he was young when he did this, right, when he started. Yeah, he started when he was 19, and oh, um, wow. he did it for all of his 20s and half of his 30s, really um, fast-paced adventures. He traveled to more than uh, 50 countries, all of them by boat, all within about 15 years. But, and, but he had help. He had a mentor or a... Yeah, he got really lucky, yeah. as, as many of us do. He, uh, on one of his first trips, he meets a man who is fabulously wealthy and uh, has traveled everywhere on the planet and decides he wants to invest in Fairchild. So he offers Fairchild... A thousand dollars that he can maybe uh, uh, finance his travels all over the world. And he wanted to go to Java, didn't he originally? He did. Yeah, he really his... wanted to go to Java. Yeah. That was his first adventure. And this man, Barbara Lathrop, says, "I'll give you a thousand dollars. You could go to Java, and then maybe you could continue traveling and find crops of economic value that could be helpful to American farmers." But what's what's his name again? Barber. Barber Lathrop. Barber Lathrop. Barber is an unusual name. Is that a family name? I bet, right? Uh, it was. Yeah, he was the grandson of James Barber, one of the early uh, governors of Virginia, oh. and really part of this, you know, storied era of American history. Mm -hmm. But you know, he was a bachelor, a very wealthy bachelor who just traveled all over the world. He financed a lot of his work that became very helpful to America's growth. And because of not having offspring and not having much family, his legacy sort of uh, never really gets gets much attention. So Fairchild was kind of the son he never had. Yeah. Or something. Yes, or was, something. Was yeah. he, he was a bachelor or was he a bachelor? Yeah, he was, you know, it, it was hard to know in my research kind of what drove <laughs> this man and why he was so interested in this younger man. Yeah. Um, there was never much, anything much I found. Yes. Yeah, but he, you know he never wrote much down, so yeah. it's hard to diagnose no, what wrote him. One wouldn't. Yeah, but I do include in the book kind of what it was like in that era uh, to be different, to have mm. different you know identity or or, or desires right. uh, in ways that didn't fit in, and the way that he traveled certainly followed that way that he might not have felt he he fit in in uh, established and and social circles. Yeah, very true. And they did spend a lot of time together. And, they and did, was, yeah. A lot of it You're, was sort of intimidating to the younger man, though, because he, he, he was the, the uh, Barbar, our friend, uh, was, was always bragging about his exploits around the way in, in conversation, always be what happened to him, you know, in Timbuktu. And, you know, 
and uh, the younger man had didn't say much at all. Fairchild was hardly spoke, I guess, in most of the most of yeah, the time. Yeah, no. <laughs> Fairchild looked at him with great awe, with great admiration, appreciation for all the the money and the financing for all the travel. Uh, but Fairchild gets his confidence eventually and starts to say, "Thank you for paying for all this, but if we're going to do this well, we need a, a scientific strategy, and mm-hmm. I'm the scientist, so mm-hmm. let's discuss together." And Fairchild and Barbara Lathrop eventually form a team where they're seen as equals and they treat each other as equals. That yeah. one of them provides the the means, the money, and the other provides the the brains uh, to really give give some direction to their travels. Yeah, and and Lathrop, um, on his part, actually starts to get into it. He he, dis- he discovered uh, cocaine more or less, didn't he? Yeah, he uh, he was one of the first Americans to discover. Uh, this this strange uh, plant that people in the Andes would chew on and have uh, an enormous amount of energy. And he sent samples back to the Academy of Sciences to test. And those were some of the earliest cocaine, uh, coca, coca samples coca. to be received in the U.S., which, of course, eventually uh, was distilled uh, and transformed into what we now know as cocaine. Or Coca-Cola first, I guess. Or Coca-Cola, yeah. Yeah. Those were the days... <laughs> the earliest recipe of Coca-Cola actually included uh, trace amounts of cocaine, so yeah. that that doesn't happen anymore. But that was the the name, the source of the name. Well, you have to add it now if you want it. it comes out. <laughs> and and Lathrop wasn't he involved in in tobacco. There's like new breed of tobacco or something, a better one than we had from the early founders or whatever oh yeah wow you you got into all of his adventures yeah when, when fairchild i read the book man don't people read your book I, you know people I, say to me god how did you know that what's in your book did you? well so not everyone reads it i read it that, yeah that, cover to cover i appreciate it yeah uh but when fairchild goes to dicier places one of them is hong kong in uh, 1902 barbara lathrop stays back and says i'm gonna go somewhere a little more developed like japan and he collects tobacco seeds. And so the two of them, you know, split up with this work and, uh, you know, collect seeds and cuttings that could be helpful um, and and certainly economically uh, transformative. Yeah. Let's let's look at some of these adventures. And they were adventures, actually. Like, for example, he was in, in New Guinea. Yeah. Uh, Fairchild goes to New Guinea. He does a whole tour around the South Pacific. Uh, he goes to Fiji also. Mm-hmm. Um, he picks up varieties of bananas, uh, and they come first from New Guinea. Um, these are all tropical fruits, and when you think of the, the uh, Indian Ocean, the Malay Archipelago, that was where Fairchild found the most fascination with the crops that grew first there. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I, mean, I mean, how dangerous was that, though? I mean, I imagine there wasn't a big tourism uh, industry to New Guinea at that point. No, I mean, to be a white man traveling in that era provided him a sense of, of security and honor, certainly because there's a lot of colonization, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the, the American and European countries are colonizing most parts of the world, which provides them some, some security, but also, you know, they're colonizing people that are not happy being colonized and not uh, welcoming always. So, you know, Fairchild is received as, as a man of high honor in Fiji, but when he goes through some of the islands um, of Indonesia, he is shot at with arrows, right? Mm-hmm. He is unwelcome on these islands. They don't trust white men, and they don't want to know what he wants or what he brings. 
so it, it was a mixed bag of, of, yeah. of danger, but um, he, he survived every time. So his America First policy wasn't big in <laughs> some of the islands. No, the yeah, Malay certainly Peninsula. wasn't. Yeah. And never more so was that the case than Hawaii, right? And we, we basically went and stole Hawaii. And yeah. I'm, yes, go this, ahead. this was an era of, of America finding its confidence. And when it came to Puerto Rico and Cuba and the Philippines and Hawaii, these were all areas that America, feeling brash and confident, essentially took. Um, America beat Spain in the Spanish-American War of 1898, and as a result, ends up with these colonies all over the world that could be helpful and valuable for resources, but also come with a lot of people, including, you know, especially the Philippines, that aren't really happy having, you know, this colonizing superpower on the other side of the world. Yeah. So it was an era of growth and also of, of learning yes. for, for the country. An era, an era of uh, imperialism. Yeah, certainly. Yes. And... Uh... And and one thing you do or you don't get from this is you don't get much of a sense of of the of him getting into the cultures that he was in, you know. Or you, you certainly they're looking for samples, but you don't see much. He's not saying much about the the people or the way they live, or uh, which is he, and certainly he important. had observations and yeah. and he interacted with people. He but, did. You know, he was driven by something else, the horticulture. You know, he would he would get to a place and get off a boat and go to a market, a farmer's market, where he could see what they're selling, he could talk to the people who grow it, collect seeds and cuttings, get growing tips, and and stay maybe in a, a few days and then leave. You know, he wasn't there for these kind of, you know, cultural experiences mm-hmm. that, you know, he'd sit around and discuss and that, you know, he wanted to find things that were valuable and then go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did that, you know, many, many hundreds of times. I think because he had that spirit of efficiency of, you know, I'm here to meet you, but I'm not here to, to chit-chat at great length. Yeah. Uh, and, and he was always on the move. Did he ever have a cultural experience <laughs> on these trips? He, he had many. I mean, when yeah. he went to Fiji, as I mentioned, he, you know, he received as, they, they mistake him and Barbara Lathrop for the president of the United States and his <laughs> assistant. Uh, and so they have this great kava ceremony, kava, this, this drink of Fiji that, that numbs the mouth, yeah. and they sit around and drink kava with the, the king of Fiji, essentially. Um, he has another uh, great experience in, in Bavaria, where mm. he goes to collect hops. Ah, hops. Yeah. Hops come from, you know, brew, help brew the bre- best beer in, sure. in Germany. And Fairchild goes and, and spends evenings with the growers and, um, and flatters them and, and seeks their advice and opinions and honors them for the best hops in the world, mm-hmm. and eventually is given a shipment of hops to bring back to the U.S. Yeah. So he certainly met a lot of people and uh, had a lot of, uh, you know, but, cross-cultural experience. Yeah, but, Daniel, come on, he was using them. It he wasn't because was he didn't certain love of Bavarian culture. Or something. It was that he had to, no one would tell him the secret to hops, you know, and how they grew or give him a sample. And so he had to well, work his way, weem his way. Is there a word, weem? He he was he was yes he was a diplomat you know which which in his early days he was more of a spy he would go places he would try to get what he came for and get out without anybody noticing but later in his in his travels he becomes more of a diplomat and in Germany yeah you know he's trying to get these seeds the whole time and he's trying to flatter them and, and essentially trick them but he also realizes that there's value in 
botanical friendship that if I am <laughs> frank and honest with these guys and I tell them what I want yeah. and honor their expertise, yeah. that this will be a lasting relationship that yeah. maybe will yield more. But he really wasn't honest with them. I mean, these are guys who had uh, young, other young men, probably his age, guarding their fields at night so no one would steal a hop. Yeah. Yeah, it took him a few weeks of being there before someone said, <laughs> I'll give you some hops because I know you want them, but you can't tell anyone else, and then, and then you should get out of here. <laughs> so, yeah. And thank God he got those hops, though. Huh? Well, what, what our, our beer would be. We had some hops, but they were low-grade, right? But right, maybe, very low-grade. Yeah. Um, and, and those hops really infuse new life and new flavor into American beer right around the era when, when the, the big brewers in, in – Wisconsin, Milwaukee, uh, certainly, yeah, absolutely. Schultz's, um, and, the uh, and and in St. Louis, are trying to grow these big, big beer brands. Uh, certainly, they did. Yeah, yeah, uh, pretty amazing. Are we still using the same hops for, that came from we, this? Or are we are they, we still have hops. They're descendants of those early hops. So they've been they crossbred and hybridized and, and yeah. innovated season after season. Uh, and and it didn't help that. A few decades after Fairchild brings back those hops, we plow up a lot of our hops fields because of prohibition uh, and oh, yeah. beer brewing. That but a lot out. of those hops did survive and, and are yeah. the, the ancestors of the ones we use today. Yeah, he had some very good timing in a lot of these things. He, <laughs> you know. It was hit or miss, but yeah. you know, he had more success than failure. It seemed like wars seemed to help. Yeah, If there was a war, then there would be shortages of certain things, and then he could go out and try to, you know... Re- refill them yeah and that's the story yes with uh the civil war in the u.s which which brings a cotton production to a halt egypt starts to produce more cotton as a result of the global shortage and egypt then produces a superior variety that becomes what we know now as egyptian cotton some of the best cotton in the world yeah was that originally our cotton it was it was a strain of, of of cotton that came from somewhere in the eastern hemisphere but they didn't develop it until America stopped yeah. uh, flooding the market. Yeah. So Civil War, bad for the country, good for David Fairchild. Good for the sheets we sleep on, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, the, and World War I was great for the, for the hops thing. Yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, yeah all, all, you know, this is a formative era in the country. This is Fairchild you know, going around and meeting cultures amid conflict, right? Colonizing superpowers and, and island people who had never been contacted and having success and having failure, but the world was changing in, in dramatic ways. And uh, in the book, I try to argue that he was also changing the world through uh, a lot of these industries that he helped sprout that uh, transformed what we eat and how America grew. Yeah. And this this really took off because it, uh, one thing I wrote in the, I had to write on your book. I'm sorry, because otherwise I have to leaf through it and say, now where was that? Then I, but 1901, ten new plants were arriving in D.C. every day, and they were arriving by laborious and long journeys on steamships and and ports and and so forth. Right? So, yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Coming from all over the world, and and what's most amazing is these plants would arrive alive. You know, they would they would be on a boat for a month or two months and still get to a place like Washington, which is not the most hospitable climate for tropical plants. And or be grown else. in greenhouse yes. or, or anything, yeah, and be sent across the country 
at great length and, and uh, in great time, uh, but still survive and, and be able to be used by a farmer at right. the end of the line. So how is that? I know that when he was in Corsica, and that was like his first adventure, and he stole the lemon thing, uh, yeah. the, the plant and a, a graft of it, and stuck it into a potato and shipped the potato. And I think that made it, didn't it? Is, is that? It did. Yeah, he was always experimenting with shipping methods. Yeah, uh, he, he must potatoes. have figured it out. I mean, it was, it was a horrible problem. Yeah, I mean, it depended on the plant. No, there was no one method, but some, like uh, like like all citrus, would fit in a potato uh, that you could uh, have nourished the plant across the ocean. Uh, other times, he used wet peat moss um, that would work. He would coat uh, uh, the roots of some plants in mud and several layers so that it would stay moist inside but harden on the outside. There was no one method, and a lot of plants died on route, but uh, but but he was always trying to optimize the shipping method. Yeah. And then you, not everyone was as happy uh, about the, this process as as he was, and so this stuff would probably stack up in D.C. right in some warehouse in D.C. Yeah, I mean, think about it. He's sending things that he's never seen to a place <laughs> where all these bureaucrats in Washington. They don't know what to do with a mango seed. You know, you can't grow a mango in Washington. No. Um, and to get a mango, to know what to do, to keep it alive, to grow it from new seed and to send it to a place like Florida and then instruct farmers there of how to grow it, it was a long process and uh, required a, a lot of, of delicate coordination and communication. No. And the, the story, the avocado story, I like a lot because... He never patented any of these things. Can you patent a plant? No, you you can now. Yeah. And um, he he was an agent for the government, so mm-hmm. the government wasn't in the business of patenting these plants. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to share them with farmers, mm-hmm. all of them. But the avocado is a great example. Fairchild uh, yeah. picks up avocado. Hello, are we dropping out a little bit there? David, are you still there? I'm here. Okay, yeah, we dro- that dropped out that part there. Oh, know. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Fair, Avocados fair are, are the story. He picks them up in Chile in 1896, mm-hmm. sends them back to Washington, and they make their way to Southern California where people innovate them for decades. And it wasn't until 1935 that a man found and innovated a superior variety, and he patented it, and that's the origin of the Haas avocado. His name was Rudolf Haas. Ah. And he was a mailman, wasn't he? He was a postal clerk, exactly. Yeah, postal he delivered clerk. mail. Yeah. And that's the Haas avocado. That's Yeah, which is a patented, yeah. uh, and you could find in government databases, the avocado patent. Yeah. Do the Haases still own the patent on every avocado that we consume? Every guacamole? I, no, I don't know. Yeah. I think that the patent expires at a certain point, yeah. certainly after a few decades. Yeah. Um, and then farmers can innovate it, but if, mm. if uh, the the name is now more valuable, I think for marketing than as a patent. Yeah, well, that's really amazing. Uh, was he involved at all in any of the uh, the wine uh, industry in in California? Not so much. He did pick up seedless grape varieties in Italy um, around 1900, and did have some success with grapes. But when you think of today's grapes as you know, very fine, very precise. Um, given a diverse selection of names used to brew, uh, to uh, to create, you know, the best wines in the world, you know, he was in a much earlier chapter of that and, and didn't really have um, 
much impact on wine. Also, in the early 20th century, you know, people didn't drink the amount of wine they did now, and drinking any alcohol was not looked upon quite favorably. Uh, so it wasn't a great era of, of yeah. uh, viticulture and winemaking. Except in the Bohemian Club, where they... Yeah, when men would sit around and smoke and drink and, and discuss, yeah. Which Lather belonged to. He, that was the only place he ever lived. Yeah. Uh, in San Francisco, he only had a, a room in the Bohemian Club, which still exists uh, right around Union Square in San Francisco. That's right, yeah, it does. That's right. Uh, and let's, it's, a, it's an amazing story. And, uh, you know, just to recount some of the things, we, we, we missed a number of fruits here. With the nec- we said the nectarine, I think, dates. The nectarine is from Afghanistan. Now, so what but, kind yeah. of, uh, what, that must have been a trip. Yeah, most almost all stone fruits. So peaches, nectarines, really? plums, apricots all come from that era area of of Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan. Uh, and he he went there on his way out of Baghdad um, to try to find even more crops in places where people had grown fruit and grown food for thousands of years, uh, much longer than any American farmers had uh, been growing their crops. Yeah. In those countries, had they done some grafting to improve the, the fruits? The yeah. Vegetables? Certainly. Yes. I mean, in, uh, you know, you think of the oldest, oldest places where people have farmed, and really that's Egypt, right? The Fertile Crescent mm-hmm. and, and further east into, into uh, you know, Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, that area. There's still, you know, a lot of innovation that goes on but um, what, what's most valuable there is their breed stock. They have some of the oldest varieties of these things in the world. And if you want to create an even better peach or a better apricot, you want essentially the primary colors of that fruit. And so that's why you'd go to that region to find some of the oldest, hardiest breed stock available. Yeah. Is that why they're still growing mango, uh, mango trees right now, huge mango trees at oh, Fair, yeah. Fairchild's Place? Yes. Oh yeah, big time. And you can, you know, go to go to Fairchild's Garden in Florida to get original mangoes, but food companies go to to get those mangoes also. And that's why every so often, you know, you hear of a new apple variety or a new plum variety, something that is is better than the species that came before, maybe it's sweeter, maybe it's bigger, maybe it doesn't bruise very easily. So that that spirit of food innovation of agricultural um, of agricultural advancement continues and will continue as long as as long as uh, there are people on the planet who need to eat and uh, and consumers who are discerning about what they want to eat. And I'm assuming that, now your background is is sort of uh, you're you're kind of uh, horticultural. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I I love both you know gardening and plants. In that case, in that way, I share with with Fairchild. I'm not as much a foodie, you know. I won't go to fancy restaurants with tasting menus and and savor individual tastes. I'm more interested in the crops we eat. Why, when you go into a supermarket, there's only maybe 20 fruits available when there are thousands of fruits around the world, and it's this: it's the process and story of of adventure, of travel, of history, of economics. And every fruit has a story. Uh, what what excites me most and has excited me is that many of the fruits we eat had passed uh, through the hands of David Fairchild uh, about a hundred years ago. 
And that's an amazing story. It's called The Food Explorer. Daniel Stone, who we've been talking to here, is the author and a former interested, uh, what do you know, listener. <laughs> he wanted to be in radio, and I didn't even respond to him, and I feel extra bad now. But no, we're, no, we're going to no. play this up is, this book no end to try to make this it. This is great redemption, Michael. It's a thrill <laughs> to be with you, and uh, a great to talk to you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I loved it. And I love the book. It's great, and very nice to talk with you as well. David Stone, ladies and gentlemen. The book is called The Food Explorer. It's been real, and now we haven't heard that much from you today. But uh, are you tired from the uh, the journey? I uh, expounded on my entire week. You did, but not in real time, like you usually do. We don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I want to thank you all for listening or watching or whatever you're doing there, and thank you, Lyle Anderson, my main man. Let's close with uh, theme music. Everybody. Trump even did a few words. He did a few words. With a light and a bite from above. What? From the mountains to the Okay, I'm working on this. You go about your day. Thank you very much. Talk to you real soon. Oh.